the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone, this is Mary Woods and I'm your host today for One Hour at a Time. Um, I'm thinking that a lot of you are becoming more and more aware of the fact that um, young people, students in college, um, both in high school and on college campuses, are using prescription medications such as Adderall or Ritalin um, to help kind of boost their cognitive abilities. And our our show today is about study drugs um, and the abuse of prescription drugs for education. And our guest is Ellen Schwartz, who is a national correspondent for the New York Times. Ellen was a finalist for the 2011 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for his multi-year series of more than 120 articles on the dangers of concussions and football, which have been widely credited with revolutionizing the respect and protocol for head injuries in almost every major youth and professional sport. Before joining the uh, New York Times, he was a nationally recognized baseball writer and author of the best-selling book, The Numbers Game, Baseball's Lifelong Fascination with Statistics. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with a degree in mathematics. Welcome to our show, Alan. Well, thank you very much. It's good to be here. How did you get interested in uh, the the use of prescription drugs for education? Uh, To be honest with you, it was something that I, while I was a sports writer, I suspected was happening. Uh, because of my experience with uh, you know steroids in sports, I felt that the motivations to get a leg up pharmaceutically uh, in academic settings had to be just as strong as as it is in athletic settings. Now, I, I when I found out that I was right that this was happening, I thought I was a genius uh, until I found out about a split second later that this is something that's been going on for a very long time and is certainly not unknown. Uh, so, as disappointed as I was that I hadn't figured out something new. It also made me wonder, if it's so well-known, why is it still happening? And uh, when I left the sports department at the Times uh, a little while back, I said I wanted to look into this trend of more and more students at particularly high-pressure high schools, not all across the country, not in every corner of America, but in the very high-pressure type communities. Uh, These kids turning more and more towards pharmaceutical help to at, at least maybe uh, help them academically. There's obviously great arguments as to whether these medications do boost, do boost cognitive ability, whether they merely uh, remove distraction or help uh, lower the speed bumps of distraction. Uh, but why is this still going on? Why do I keep hearing that you know, 40 or 50 percent of many college campuses around finals time or cracked out on Adderall. It's, it's very odd, and I wanted to learn more about it. Um, well, as a substance abuse professional, I'm very glad that you've put this out in mainstream media because it's certainly something we've been seeing um, as addiction providers for quite a while. 
and um, the abuse of Ritalin and Adderall and almost all the stimulant medications um, almost seems epidemic. And it goes back to, you know, does everyone, I mean, when I went to school, I knew maybe one person that had ADHD, and now it seems like every, you know, five out of ten kids have ADHD. So I'm, I'm really interested to know what you found out. Have we gotten more sophisticated in assessing people, or are we just have less tolerance as parents and educators for any behavior that isn't going to make a successful classroom? Well, one thing I want to emphasize to all the increasingly annoyed people and listeners out there, uh, that this was not a referendum on whether ADHD exists, it does, and whether these medications, Ritalin, Vyvanse, Focalin, Concerta, uh, and, and Adderall, whether these medications should be made available to the people who really need them. The assumption is, is that it's a real disorder and that these medications are designed to help people with this disorder. The problem is, is that the landscape is being clouded by uh, doctors who prescribe the medications for reasons beyond the accepted criteria for ADHD, and also by kids and young adults, and not young adults, who merely fake the symptoms to their doctors, who some of whom just write them prescriptions anyway and don't pay a whole lot of attention. And then so these drugs these medications, uh, medications to some, drugs to others, uh, are now sort of in the bloodstream of academia. And people who don't need them are selling them or giving them away. People who want to take them have easy access. It's not as if you have to go to, you know, some shady street corner uh, to your, you know, local neighborhood drug dealer like you do heroin. You just go to your roommate. Everybody in school in these types of schools, either has a prescription or knows somebody who does. And uh, I think one of the great problems is that, or two of the great problems is that, A, it clouds, you know, who has the disorder and who doesn't. And I think that the people who really do have the disorder and who work with people who really have the disorder are getting pretty annoyed because there is an assumption now that they have or what their patients have is not real. Well, because a lot of the times it isn't. A lot of people are faking it. Well, uh, that's a problem, and it also messes up the competitive landscape of academics, which we all know is getting worse and worse, where people are, you know, some kids, not all, but some kids feel as if they need to do it in order to keep up with either the kids who are smarter or the kids who have access to the medications. And are we early on in this process? Yes, a little bit. This is, this is not your concern notwithstanding. This is not a raging epidemic. There are bigger problems out there. However, this is a very distinct problem that is getting worse, and no one seems to be doing much about it. I find that interesting. Also, I find it interesting because... I would have been one of these kids. I'm 44. Uh, I grew up in Scarsdale, New York, which is one of the sort of hotbeds of academic pressure, public school academic pressure. I was, you know, good but not perfect. And I, uh, kids like me should not feel as if they have to do, you know, deal in class two controlled substances in order to please their parents or community. 
or their self-image of what is or is not academic success. It's completely screwed up, and, you know, if I can help get people talking about it, then that would probably be a good thing. What did you find? Um, did you find any root causes for that pressure, or is it just a varies from community to community? Well, again, what I was writing about doesn't exist in every corner of the country. I'm not going to say where it does not exist because there might be a <laughs> there might be an assumption uh, that I consider that that place sort of less intelligent or less caring about academic success. But I think we all know the types of communities that I'm talking about. I mentioned my hometown, uh, which is not alone. Uh, I, I won't, well, I mean, I guess I'll mention some of the communities that I dealt with. McLean, Virginia, uh, uh, southern, south, southwestern Connecticut, Bamaranek, New York, uh, some areas outside Philadelphia, Dallas, uh, wealthy parts of Los Angeles. Uh, you know, the places where... It's Ivy League or bust, and by Ivy League I mean not only those eight schools, but Stanford and Duke and, you know, those types of schools. Uh, Where, you know, if you have the feeling that unless you get into one of these great schools, you're a failure, well, you're going to be encouraged to do things you might not otherwise be tempted to do. Uh, Now, whether these medications, do in fact help you perform academically is open to some debate, some of which is reasonable and some of which I consider not reasonable. Uh, What these drugs do for the people who don't know is they're called stimulants, but in fact they don't make you necessarily hyper, although they can. Uh, To people with ADHD specifically, they allow for less distraction. They seem to lower the speed bumps of distraction and allow the otherwise easily distractible to concentrate a little bit better, to not be as fidgety, as wandering, and allow them to read or do problem solving uh, in a way that, that we consider more, more normal. Uh, now, for people who do not have ADHD, and by the way, ADHD is not binary. It's not that you either have it or you don't. It's just where you sort of are on the spectrum that you kind of maybe are. You either definitely are, you maybe are, you maybe not be, or you definitely aren't. Uh, for people like me, you know, who don't have ADHD but could use as much help as they, <laughs> they can concentrating, because who, 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 who doesn't have trouble concentrating these days, it also allows you to focus and be less distracted and get more done typically, than you would otherwise. And that's extraordinarily tempting. If you have four hours worth of problem sets in front of you that you can complete in two hours instead of six, uh, that's very tempting. And so if, if you think it's going to... It is not unreasonable to think that concentrating harder in certain settings will improve your performance. Uh, And it's gotten to the point where many kids feel as if before the SATs, which you know can be a four or five hour uh, arduous experience, that some of them snort Adderall before the SATs in order to stay awake and focused during the exam. Does it help all of them? No. 
Does it help all of the kids who think it helps them? No. But does it help enough of them that a lot of people keep doing it? You bet. You know, I guess as you're talking, one of the questions I have is those communities that you mentioned, my assumption is there was always a high expectation in those communities for for people to do well in school and go to a good college. I don't think that that's anything new in the last 10 or 15 years. No, certainly not. I mean, the pressure has always been there. The question is what options you have to act on it. Uh, And 20 years ago, or 25 years ago, when I graduated high school, I had never heard the word Ritalin. Now, Ritalin's been around since since 1995, excuse me, 1955 or so. And ADHD has been around. But it was not nearly as recognized and, for lack of a better word, embraced as it is today, and it only has become more so. Uh, Now, in many cases, uh, the reason that the percentage of kids diagnosed with ADHD, which has generally gotten to most estimates are about 8 to 10 percent nationally, that has been going up consistently every year for two reasons. One is doctors are getting better at diagnosing it, which is a good thing. But It's also going up because doctors are giving the diagnosis to more and more kids who do not have the disorder but have gotten the doctors to think they do. Uh, That is a bad thing. So what we need to do is we need to separate the kids who really do need it from the kids who really don't. What role do parents play in this? Because if, if, as a parent, I know that my... Um, son's best friend is taking this medication and his grades have improved. Um, you know, maybe that's something I should do for my son. Well, does, does your friend's best friend, your friend's son have ADHD? Um, I'm just using it hypothetically. That, oh, excuse you know, me. What role does, do, do parents play in this? Because parents tend to be competitive too. Well, I mean, I'm not here to, you know, it's really not my place to tell parents how to be. Uh, I think that what we need to do as a society is decide what we feel is appropriate under certain circumstances and what we don't, okay? Um, I think we would agree, generally, that a a a 16-year-old taking their friend's medication uh, without a prescription is inappropriate. Uh, It is most certainly illegal. It is a felony. It is virtually the equivalent of buying cocaine from somebody. That's not quite, but it's close enough. A lot of people don't know that. A lot of kids don't know that. They figure, well, it came from a doctor. So what's the problem? It must be fine. It must be safe, let alone legal. Well, that's a fallacy. Um, it's safe. Uh, you know, it, 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 it can be harmless, but it is, definitely has the potential to be harmful, too. Uh, and uh, so parents... Well, their range of options uh, go from, you know, making sure their kids understand that to to take these drugs without a prescription is illegal. Uh, they should discuss the differing opinions of whether it's immoral. It's not for me to say whether it is or not. Uh, and and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the parents who say, "Do anything you can to get ahead." I, I don't think there are that many of those. But there are enough and enough people who are close to that end of the spectrum as to give other people a lot of ideas. 
And we'll be right back after this commercial to talk more with Alan. If you have any questions or experiences with um, Adderall or uh, knowing people that are using this for to get better grades, please give us a call after this commercial. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. There are a number of health and social services available to individuals for low cost or no cost. Now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need. Tune in to Outreach Today with host Melissa Jenkins Simon. Our program promotes the benefits and services of CI Incorporated, providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies. We want to help you. Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because a fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, I'm Mary Woods, and our host today is Alan Schwartz, the national correspondent for the New York Times, who wrote a very uh, interesting article, um, I believe it was on June 9th, 2012, called Risky Rise of the Good Great Pill. And, you know, what's troubling, there's a lot of things about what's in your article that's extremely troubling to me. Um, the first is study drugs is not even a term we used five years ago, and so, you know, now, you know, we had club drugs, now we've got study study drugs, and as a society, it just seems like more and more and more, we're looking for the quick fix, the magic bullet, and, um, you know, stimulants are, are dangerous uh, drugs or medications, and they shouldn't be used lightly, and especially on young people, because our brains don't really mature till we're about 20. 25. So anything we're doing before 25, using alcohol, smoking pot, taking any of these drugs, um, we're doing some, you know, basic neurochemical alteration to to our uh, developing brain. So I that this whole thing just concerns me. I um, I know in the last segment you kind of steered away from some of the more societal. Uh, comments that I made, but I really do think that that this is a, a symptom of, of a lot of things that are um, troubling about our society and troubling about, um, you know, the messages we give kids about education in general um, and, and about sports, as you had said earlier, that the need to compete um, is so strong, the need to be successful is so strong that kids don't even have a chance to be kids anymore. And um, they grow up to be very um, unhappy adults. And I just think that, I don't know, I, I it's very disheartening. 
So, um, well, let me, let me make a couple of points, okay? Um, first of all, and I, I want to make this very clear, because too many people who I really respect have made it to me, and so I want to make it to the listeners. Uh, these medications, okay, are, yeah, are they, are, can they be dangerous in the wrong hands? Yes. I mean, so can a chainsaw. Uh, many things can be dangerous when used improperly. However, when used properly and under the care of a responsible physician, these medications can be virtually life-saving uh, to, or at least intellectually sort of life-saving, to people with this disorder, with, with, with a heavy dose of this disorder. Uh, and a lot of clinicians are very concerned that parents who listen to, to programs like these, which are very well-meaning and very well thought out, Okay, these people sounding warning signs, warning calls. But the problem is, is that we we also don't want to scare people who really need the medication away from using it appropriately. Uh, you know, we talk about quick. You mentioned the term quick fix. I mean, one could say that an appendectomy is a quick fix. Okay, or you know, are you are are you know buying. Buying ready-made clothes at J.C. Penney, you know, well, you know, in the old days we used to make it ourselves, and now people just want the quick fix. Efficiency can be a good thing, okay? And so we don't want to just make a blanket statement about something that's quicker or easier being bad, okay? And just because something can have bad outcomes, which these medications can have, doesn't make them inherently bad when used properly, and. ADHD, the stronger third, if you will, the strongest third of, if you have mild, medium, and bad ADHD, bad ADHD is worse than these medications' risks. And so we don't want to scare people away from medication in general. I think what we want to discuss, as you said, is whether people without ADHD should be compelled either explicitly or implicitly, to dabble in these medications with no doctor in sight. That is the real risk, because you have kids getting hooked, you have kids who don't understand how these drugs need to be used and what their side effects can be, i.e. cardiovascular problems, psychotic episodes in the worst cases, uh, and they have no way of knowing you know, whether their, their growth is being stunted or whatnot. Again, in, in the proper hands, doctors can typically take care of these things rather well. The best doctors can. Um, well, I, so we want to be I, a little I, careful I there. Yeah, I don't think I'm making a blanket statement that, that all stimulants are bad. What I'm saying is is that um, after almost 35 years treating people with addictions, I have a very skewed, probably, um, view of medications in general, and and doctors in particular, because I'm not sure. You know, how do we find the good doctors for to, to diagnose ADHD or depression or whatever? Um, so many times our healthcare system is geared toward a 15-minute visit, and that 15-minute visit doesn't allow you for much time for assessment. And I think that as listeners, they need to be savvy about doing their homework. Who is a good doctor for ADHD? Who is a good doctor for depression? Because um, there's a lot of pressure on physicians to get to the next appointment. And the easiest thing to do is to write a prescription. 
Uh, that may be. Um, it's very disheartening to think that there are doctors like that. Um, and I, it by no means is it a majority. And, and uh, the problem is, is that it only takes one in every town. And right. if there's a, somebody, you know, if there's a guy or a woman, for that matter, in, in, in your town who is pretty lax about doing their homework on whether you do or do not have the disorder, um, everyone's going to go to that person. That person's going to make one heck of a living. Uh, I think that one of the, you know, one of the antidotes uh, can be, you know, prescription drug monitoring programs that allow doctors, uh, at least the, 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 good, the good ones, uh, to check to see which of their patients are getting prescriptions from which other doctors to make sure that they don't double up. That's particularly true in pain medications like oxycodone and whatnot. Um, and just because the person's a doctor doesn't make them a genius and doesn't make them responsible. Uh, I say that uh, not because I don't like doctors. It's just because in every profession, there is a tail end of the bell curve that can really mess things up for the rest of them. Uh, same thing is true with journalists. Every time a journalist screws up and makes something up or an author or whatever, it gives everybody doubt as to whether what everybody else is doing is, is correct and fair. Uh, however, that's not necessarily life and death. Here it can be. Uh, I've come across doctors who prescribe, prescribe, prescribe uh, with absolutely, you know, n no heeding of, of obvious warnings. Um, it's very, it can be very disheartening. Uh, you can't just assume because the doctor has a lab coat, they know what they're doing. And I think that's all the more important for people to do their homework. You know, um, find out what you can, not only about the physician you're with, but whatever the diagnosis is and what, what all the different treatments are for any diagnosis. I think it's just, it's imperative that people become informed consumers. Yeah, I mean, but again, it, these medications can be very helpful. It's just they shouldn't be done, they shouldn't be taken lightly or frivolously. And they should generally, if at all possible, be used in a complementary fashion with other uh, possible treatments such as behavioral therapy, family training, working with the schools, diet, uh, other behavioral habits, you know, playing video games constantly and, and whatnot. I mean, there's all sorts of things that need to be done beyond giving the child a pill. Giving the child a pill is not inherently terrible. It's doing it at the exclusion of everything else that, that can bring some problems. Um, when you did your article, you said that you had um, like 200 like a leads that you send out to people, and uh, 40 people responded. Is that a typical um, response? Um, well, actually, no. I, I actually spoke with 200 different... I reached 200 people, okay. whether they were kids or parents or doctors or teachers or law enforcement or attorneys and school administrators and principals and whatnot, guidance counselors. I reached 200 of them. And only about 40 of them would even discuss the subject. It is a real bugaboo uh, because schools don't want their reputations hurt. Parents don't want their kids' reputations hurt. Parents don't want their schools' reputations hurt, you know, because if, you live, if you're paying $25,000 a year in taxes for a good school system that can help your kid get into a great college, the last thing you need is for some expose about how you're you know, half the kids in your school are on Adderall. Uh, they don't really want that, uh, unfortunately. Um, so 
I think that there is a great reluctance to deal with it because in many ways, you know, these, these, these kids, you know, they have one shot to get into college, basically. One shot. And they feel like they'll do what they need to do in that circumstance. And then that'll be it. And in many ways, I can understand that. Again, I might have been one of these kids. I'm not sure I would have had the guts, but that's a separate conversation. But who's to say I wouldn't have done this? And uh, so I think that the, the, the reluctance that people have to discuss the subject indicates the stakes involved. It really does. Were any of them concerned about taking the Adderall or concerned about the pressure they were under? Oh, lots of kids. <laughs> lots of kids wanted to talk to me, but uh, I wouldn't talk to them without the knowledge or consent of their parents uh, in general. I mean, unless they were going to be anonymous, at which point there were circumstances under which we would do it because we did not want, uh, we, we, we would not allow a child to discuss illegal activity uh, by him or herself or uh, by anyone else uh, specifically. Uh, we, that was a decision that we, we made. It's more nuanced than that, but that's the general gist of it. We wanted to give people a safe forum to discuss the issue in general, what, how it had affected them personally and how it had affected their academic experience. Uh, unfortunately, so many people were afraid to talk about it uh, or, or were told that they could not talk about it. I had a superintendent who wanted to invite me to his school in order to talk to kids because he said, I did not even know about this until you brought it up to me. I checked with a couple of kids. It is an issue. And if you come here, I will learn more about it so that I can help kids more. He wanted to invite me to his district to check things out and learn. And you know what? That's a wonderful outcome. The school board refused to let him do it. The school board said, no, do not allow him in the building. And so the superintendent called me up and said, I'm really sorry, but I mean, I just can't. I mean, he would just lose his job, so I understand how, you know, he can't let me in. He said that was the deal. Places are very concerned about their reputations, and the last thing they need is for an article in the New York Times to describe, you know, bad behavior by their kids. Uh, even if, frankly, it'll be done by somebody who really can couch it in a fair way, in an understanding way, in an empathetic way. As I said, I would have been one of these people. I think, maybe. Um, so everyone is very protective of not only their reputations, but their ability to, uh, to get ahead, because you have one shot to get into college, and you're not going to mess with it. Um, I, you know, that just kind of leaves me speechless, so that's a good time to go to commercial. We'll be right back. If you have any experience with this or have a comment, please give us a call. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence based practices, consensus practices, and old fashioned 
common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Today we're talking about the study drugs, which are basically our stimulant drugs such as Adderall and Ritalin and Vyvanse. And we're talking with Alan Schwartz, who is a correspondent for the New York Times and wrote an article, which is still available if you Google it, um, called The Risky Rise of the Good Great Pill. And it was from June 9th, 2012. Um, you know, I... As I said, I think that there's a lot of systemic issues with this, and you had brought up um, oxycodone and oxycontin, and I think that from a systems perspective and and working in the addiction profession for as long as I have, and I'm also a registered nurse, you know, I, I see how um, doctors are at a disadvantage in so many ways. They aren't, they, they receive no education on addiction. Um, they receive very little education on prescribing um, they're forced by the powers to be to see as many people as possible within an eight-hour time frame, and that's just the way our healthcare system is. And I think that, you know, Can I, I step was in for a, one second. Can yeah. I just step in for one second? I, just because you I really want to make a couple of points. I, 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 okay. I, I, I would hate. I, I mean, I know what you mean, but I don't think they're forced to do anything. And I don't think that doctors, that they're not giving, not, not getting education on addiction and not getting education on prescribing is any excuse for doing it badly. Um, you know, I think we all should expect that our doctors should know what they need to know about addiction and what they need to know about prescribing. Now, I agree that it doesn't happen <laughs> as often as it should, but shouldn't we expect more? Oh, totally. I'm, I'm not at all advocating that what we're doing is right. It's harming people all the time. I was at a self-help meeting, and I listened to a man who had been sober for 18 years and had um, wrenched his knee and had to have knee surgery, told the doctor he was in recovery. They gave him Oxycontin and um, didn't really give him any instructions, and he went home, and he ultimately ended up taking the whole bottle, getting prescriptions from three other doctors. And this was his first time back to a meeting in three years because he then eventually relapsed on alcohol and everything else. And he was telling everybody in the meeting, you need to be careful. You need to understand how powerful this is because my doctor didn't have a clue. Well, then again, why was he, taking, why was he getting prescriptions from three other doctors? Because once, you know, the message here is is that, you know, addiction is a disease and once it kicks in, you go, you know, your addiction kicks in and then you become drug-seeking um, and his inability to get back into recovery. 
So um, that was totally on him. But as you were saying, had there been a uh, system in place for doctors to check to see is this person getting any medications from other doctors, a lot of that could have been avoided. Well, you know, one of the things I've learned, because, you know, doctors are getting a bit of a black eye here, and, and I think in many ways deservedly so. Some doctors, obviously not right. all. Uh, but I think that one, one dynamic that is at play here and something that people should look out for is that I think doctors are predisposed in general to do something to help the patient, or at least do what they think is helping. They really don't like saying, no, I'm not going to give you that. Uh, they don't like withholding treatment. Uh, they prefer making errors of commission rather than omission. And, and I think we can understand why. I mean, they, they, they see somebody in need and they want to help. Uh, I think what they, what they have yet to, what some of them have yet to appreciate is, is that help in the short term can bring long-term consequences that they don't necessarily see in their office. And uh, they need to pay more attention to that. I totally agree. And I think that it's our responsibility to continue to educate the public about the need to, um, you know, take your doctor down off the pedestal, treat him like you would anyone else, and develop a relationship with him so he gets to know who you are and what, what makes you unique. Um, you, you say develop a relationship with him. You're being awfully sexist here, Mary. Or her. Are some him or her. Talk. I'm saying him. I'm using the global. I name. know. I'm him or her. I him or her. I just like giving you a hard time. No, but in all seriousness, I think what one thing I want to encourage uh, people to do is I'm still doing lots of stories on this subject, on when doctors prescribe, how they prescribe, how patients deal with their doctors when it comes to ADHD medications, uh, some of the good stories, some of the bad stories. I hear a lot of bad stories. I want to encourage people to write to me. Uh, to share some of their experiences. It can be anonymous. That's not, the, the point is not some sort of expose on your personal life. But I've learned an awful lot from people who have gotten in touch with me about what's going on around the country and how things can work better. So uh, if you could please email me. My email is A, and then my last name, S-C-H-W-A-R-Z. There's no T in Schwartz, even though it looks and sounds like it should have one at nytimes.com. So again, A. Schwartz, no T, at nytimes.com. Please, please get in touch or encourage anyone you know to get in touch. Have you been in touch with uh, college counseling centers? Not really. Uh, I don't get the impression that college counseling centers either A, know what's going on, or more likely B, care. Um, Every college either knows or should know that this is rampant, and none of them is doing a thing, from what I can tell. Uh, and so, to be honest with you, my focus so far has far more been on high schools and below, uh, because you're dealing with children, not young adults living on their own for the first time, trying all sorts of different things. It doesn't make it right, but it's different. You have uh, young adults with informed consent putting things down their throats. Uh, and I think that, I, that what I was far more compelled by was children who either don't know what they're doing or have no say in what they're doing. What is your goal at the end of this, Alan? Oh, boy. What an open-ended question. Well, uh, the reason I bring that up is that I'm trying you... to think of something far more funny than what's going through my head. Um, I think that my goal is to get parents to realize that this happens and to 
talk to their kids uh, in order to have the kids understand uh, the issues involved and the dangers and risks involved. Again, it's not going to eradicate it, <laughs> but it might make it better. Uh, I think that I wouldn't mind getting doctors to realize that somebody's watching. Uh, not that nobody's watching now. I mean, there are district attorneys, like the one in Nassau County, Long Island, who's definitely watching, uh, Kathleen Rice. Uh, you know, doctors who to, to realize that, hey, you know, these things are not placebos. They're real, and they, have, they could have real consequences if they don't pay attention. And I think more than anything else, my goal is to make it where high school students or even middle school students, because it happens in middle school, too, is to get those kids, hopefully, to, change, to, to get the environment steered, ever nudged ever so slightly toward them not feeling they have to, have to do it. You know, maybe the parents put a little less pressure on realizing what can happen if they don't. Um, maybe the kids learn, you know what, this really isn't a good idea because I hear that some people really do get hooked. Um, you know, just trying to make an incremental difference. In the same way, you know, my work with concussions in sports, I certainly was not going to make it where kids don't get concussions. And I wasn't going to make it where, you know, kids don't fake uh, their symptoms in order to get back onto the field. And I wasn't going to make it where doctors everywhere respect the injury. But we did make one heck of a difference in terms of getting it talked about and getting rules, getting people who make rules to change them to enhance safety for children. Uh, and laws across the country were changed in order to better serve children who receive the injury. Uh, if I could make one tenth of the di- if we could make one tenth of the difference uh, with ADHD medications as we did with concussions, I think everyone will be very happy. I think that would be a tremendous outcome. Um, you know, there's been it's been my experience that getting consciousness raising around substance misuse or prescription misuse, it's been like trying to you know push the boulder up the hill with a with a little stick. Um, there's a lot of resistance to... Well, well to I think that. one of the problems, okay, and I, I do not speak to substance abuse in general because I don't know enough about that, but one of the problems here is that misusing the medications, honestly, is not dangerous enough. If it were dangerous enough, people would know about it and wouldn't do it much, okay? The problem is, is that the bad outcomes don't happen that often and they don't happen out in public, and they often happen uh, for reasons that don't get traced back to the ADHD medication in general. Um, you know, when a kid gets hooked on the stimulants, oftentimes he or she will then, to counteract the stimulant medication, will start going for the Percocet or the Oxycodone. And for all the people out there who are saying, oh, he's using the gateway drug analogy, uh-oh, you know, that's been proven not true, the fact is is that the, the, the proof that people point to is not particularly compelling. And I've talked to enough kids who tell me that I went from stimulant medications, I did that first, and then I went to the oxycodone or the Percocet. i talked to enough kids who tell me, that, you know what, all these researchers who claim that their studies or double-blind double randomized studies show that that's not true, you know what, 
I think they need to open their eyes a little bit more to the real-life experiences of some real people out there. I am a data guy. You know, they're all like, show me the data. You know, I like data. I was a mathematics major, for crying out loud. I wrote a book about statistics. But sometimes you don't need data to use common sense. And I think if I can interject some of that into this conversation, I would be pretty happy. Well, you're absolutely right. And um, there are, quote-unquote, a lot of gateway, and that's a terrible term, but there's a lot of substances that we use that if you're a predisposition to a substance use disorder, then that substance is going to trigger that part of your brain. It's going to turn that switch, flip that switch, what Alan Lester used to uh, talk about at NIDA, that switching your brain is going to get flipped. And then your experience with substances thereafter is going to be different than it was before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so people blame your predisposition rather than the drug itself. And I say, would you rather be addicted at 16 or 26? I say wait till 26, but that's just me. Yeah, I would say just be preventative and don't be addicted at all. But um, we can have that little discussion after our next commercial, and we'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy the R every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking about study drugs, the abuse of prescription drugs for education, and our guest today is Alan Schwartz. And Alan is going to continue to delve into this phenomenon and is looking for your experience and um, any information that you may have that uh, he would be more than happy to hear about this. Um, He certainly made... uh, 
great strides in raising consciousness about concussions, and I think you've affected change as a result of that. My sincere hope is that the same thing will happen with this. So can you repeat for people how to get in contact with you? Sure, sure. Uh, easy to reach via email. My address is my first initial, A, and then my last name, S-C-H-W-A-R-Z. There's no T, even though it looks and sounds like it should have one, at nytimes.com. So again, A. Schwartz with no T, at nytimes.com. So um, in looking at this study drugs, um, what percentage of, of, has there been any uh, data to show that these drugs are effective? Are the, you know, are the kids taking the SATs? Do they think they're doing better? Um, well, they're, are they failing them once and taking differ. the drug the people, next time? Yeah, people tend to differ on their view. Uh, uh, people differ with their views of whether the medications help. I think one of the things that some generally obnoxious people uh, tend to do is say, these drugs don't make you smarter. Well, no one's saying that they make you smart. Nobody with a brain says that they make you smarter. What they do, apparently do, is decrease your tendency to be distracted and allow whatever you have in your head to function better, you know, not, not be derailed. And so you might be more likely to remember the right answer if you're not looking out the window or looking at the cute girl next, next, in the next chair. Um, or, you know, if you're lying in bed reading, uh, you're less likely to sort of drift off and, and, you know, look at the poster on your wall rather than, you know, concentrating on the book in front of you. There are many ways in which these medications do not help and, in fact, perhaps hurt. It's very difficult to write a poem. On Adderall, you ask anybody who's tried, doesn't work very well. But you try to do a math problem set or memorize vocabulary, <laughs> it works pretty good. Now, there are a lot of scientists who have told me, you know, the data show that this does not, you know, that, that the performance of people does not appreciably go up, you know, on certain tests. And I can certainly understand that the data, you know, does not show that that it goes up, but the problem is, is that they're probably using, they're generally using averages. Well, but what if for some people it goes down? Because, yeah, their reaction to it is not good, and not everybody likes taking Adderall. It doesn't work for everybody, but it works for enough people that enough people do it. What if 25 to 40 percent of the people, it does help? Well, then those 25 to 40 percent of the people are going to do it, and that's going to skew the, uh, the inherent for lack of a better term, competition among the participants. And so it doesn't have to help everybody. Of course it doesn't help everybody. It doesn't, help to, it doesn't even have to help a majority in every way. As long as it helps enough, it becomes a major issue. And an awful lot of people like to discount that issue by saying, well, it doesn't make you smarter. Well, duh. <laughs> No one's is saying that it does. In, is this just happening in America, or is this is that all? Oh, no, it, ha it happens around the world. However, uh, in general, and I, I'm starting out, I'm starting to veer outside of my area of growing expertise. But I believe that in general, particularly in Europe, uh, clinicians are far less likely to prescribe 
uh, these medications. There are, in terms of the governmental controls or the societal acceptance of these medications, uh, it's less likely to be dispensed, which makes it less likely to be abused because there isn't so much flying around. So it, it hasn't grown to be the issue in other countries as it has. What about here. Asia? Uh, I don't know that much uh, about Asia. I really don't, yeah. so I don't want to go there. Yeah. You know, um, I know from drug trials that thirty-five that oftentimes the placebo effect will will be up to thirty-five percent in a drug trial for different medications. So. Part of this is, too, if I expect this to be going to help my concentration, there's a certain percentage of people that it will help irregardless. You know? Sure. And that's fine. But, but that doesn't make your body less likely to have palpitations or right. less likely for you to get hooked if you have whatever predisposition there may be toward addiction. I mean, there's no placebo effect to that. So... You know, I, I think that that's, that only emphasizes the problem, is what if it doesn't help you? Well, hell, <laughs> then, to be honest with you, then there's even less reason to do it, because then you only uh, have the risk and not the reward. I know, I know, but people don't realize that. Yeah, it's, 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 it's the, the, the flawed logic in a lot of this is very disheartening, okay? It wouldn't be this popular if it didn't work for en- enough of the people who do it. Of course it works to some extent. It wouldn't do it otherwise. And if we all got our heads out of the sand, uh, we, would, we would decide what we want to do about it, if anything. I don't know what people do or do not want to do about it. Uh, but I, you know, I'm not telling them what to think, but I am certainly insisting on what they consider. Well, we know that consciousness raising is the first part of change, right? Um, so that's well, an important be. part of, of anything, is raising people's consciousness about what what's real and what isn't. Well, uh, you, you know, the thing is, is that a lot of parents just had no idea. It was unfathomable that kids would be trading their medications. Um, now, of course, some parents knew about it and, you know... <laughs> They wonder how people could not know about it. So for all the people out there who are thinking, how could people be that stupid? Well, there are a lot of people who, who just didn't know. Okay. More will know now. And hopefully as our work continues at the New York Times, you know, and, and presumably other media outlets, uh, more will know and more will make better decisions as to, you know, which doctors they go to, which doctors they listen to, which medications they... They, they give their children knowingly in which they're more circumspect about um, and which warning signs they heed and, and which success signs they believe in. Um, you know, this is very complicated. Again, if you have, you know, medium to severe ADHD, these medications are generally shown to be incredibly effective and considerably less dangerous than untreated ADHD would be. People with ADHD, with strong ADHD, who go untreated are far more likely to have substance abuse issues, self-medicating issues later, um, and a host of all other problems. And so whatever risks they may be taking with these medications are outweighed 
uh, by the reward of, of generally avoiding a lot worse outcome. Well, and we're dealing with here, truly... what you and I are talking about is yeah. sort of either mild ADHD or not ADHD at all. Uh, that group that is growing wider, that that band of the spectrum is growing wider, uh, where people are taking these medications, perhaps at their detriment, but almost certainly uh, skewing the uh, you know what's going on around them and what other people are thinking around them. Well, and people who have the severe ADHD their brain experiences a stimulant much differently than somebody who doesn't have ADHD or who has a mild case of it. Well, it can so and they... can't. I mean, in general, it just, it, you know, it, it will allow for you to concentrate more and be less distracted, less impulsive, less fidgety if you have severe ADHD. Now, perhaps with, a, with someone who does not have ADHD, Yes, you might get more fidgety because it's a stimulant and you can get a tick or, or certain things like that. You can get a little hyper. You can talk really, really fast, okay? But in general, it's going to help you concentrate. So, you know, the effects are not as different uh, among people with or without ADHD as, as some people might think. Uh, you know, it, it appears to calm people with ADHD because they're less jumpy, less distracted. But in many ways, it can be quite similar uh, in, in people without the disorder as well. So um, we're kind of getting to the end of our hour. Um, I would just invite anyone out there who's listening um, to really get in touch with Alan. Um, whatever he's going to continue to do is going to, I'm sure, help us be at least better thinkers about uh, study drugs, and hopefully it really will help affect some changes because we our system does need to change, especially around prescription monitoring and um, a whole host of other things. So, Alan, thank you so much for this. If people want to learn more about um, study drugs, is there one place to go, or is it basically your website? Well, I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I just have that one article that I did. I will be doing more. Uh, there are an awful lot of resources out there. Um, I mean, there aren't a whole lot of study drug websites. I mean, the, most of them are for ADHD people, uh, and they're very important. Um, but I think that read. I think you need to read the story that I wrote, and it, it's pretty much common sense on uh, what to do and what to learn more about uh, there. Or again, you can reach me. Not that I'm a doctor. However, I can listen and 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 perhaps have. Some, some thoughts, uh, uh, and also you can have some thoughts on how I can, uh, I can learn from your experiences. Again, if you reach out to me at a Schwartz, no T, at nytimes.com. Thank you so much. It was a very fast hour and a very illuminating one. Thank you, Alan. Oh, my pleasure, Mary. Anytime. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.